Thanks to Airbnb, presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's podcast miniseries on inclusive travel and tourism, recorded at the Africa Travel Summit. Visit airbnb.com right now to discover and book unique homes, experiences, and places all over the world. They're all waiting at airbnb.com. I'm Andy Lemasugu, and this episode features two South African startup founders working the trenches of the emerging gig economy. First up, the co-founder and CEO of the ride-sharing service, Lula. This global fellow of the San Francisco-based Cairo Society is currently spearheading a mission to transform the way people commute by leveraging on the shared economy and mobile technology. Also on the show is the co-founder and CEO of Sweep South, an on-demand booking platform for home cleaning services. Sweep South is quite notably the first South African startup to be accepted into the 500 Startups Accelerator in Silicon Valley. My guests were both born into families with a rich political history and inherited considerable privilege as a result. The former is the nephew of a former South African Reserve Bank governor, and the latter the daughter of South Africa's current Minister of Higher Education. Listen in to learn what motivated my guests to forego more cushy professional paths in favor of becoming entrepreneurs, and to find out what it's like to launch and run startups servicing two highly politicized industries. This is an independent African Tech Roundup production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting partner, Airbnb. Hey, hey, everyone. I'm Velani Mboweni, co-founder and CEO of Lula. We are a mobility as a service platform focusing on connecting people to transport uh, to make it accessible, safe and convenient through mobile payments, big data and shared mobility. Hi, I'm Aisha. I'm co-founder and CEO of Sweep South. We're an online platform that connects domestic workers who are vetted and experienced, uh, but who are looking for work because they're under or unemployed, with homeowners who are looking for their services. And we do it through a website and an app um, that should allow you to complete bookings within a few minutes. Vilani and Aisha, welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for having us. So listen, guys. Uh it's really a privilege to be here with you both, founders in the trenches of Startupville here on the continent. We're going to get to that in a minute. I want us to speed through as quickly as we can your origin stories. So maybe some pivotal points within you, you know, your past that help explain where you are now and perhaps what led you to your current adventures. And we were speaking offline, Vilani, about a conversation you had with your dad at a critical time when you were deciding what to study. You had a passion then for... Wait, tell the people, actually. I, I was um, about 17 years old when my father had asked me, you know, what is it that you think about when you wake up and when you go to bed? And I was like, that, that's a very broad question to ask. And he said, no, think about it, because once you have the answer to that, it will probably point you to the direction you want to pursue in life. Um, and when I thought about it at length, I realized that question is, why do people suffer? Um, and I had always wanted to study aeronautical engineering because I was obsessed with aviation and the stars and spacecraft and you know planes but I realized that from that point I had to do something that was beyond me and so I got my first degree at UCT and which was a Bachelor of Commerce uh, in philosophy politics and economics arguably the three most important disciplines around the world uh, but as I you know grew in my tech and entrepreneurial journey I realized that 
at the heart of people's access to economic opportunity, transport is what underpins us because you can't access economic opportunity without access to mobility to get you from A to B. Um, and so we're really trying to tackle poverty by virtue of us providing accessible, safe, and convenient transport. And four years down the line, Lula is a company, a mobility service platform that's really trying to empower the commuter by empowering the operator first. Right. And Aisha, I happen to know that you have similarly formative points in your past that have led you to the current journey. Give us a sense of some of those points. I come from a, a politically active activist family, uh, as I mean, as we both do. And my parents were always very much about what is your contribution? Like, you can't just be a person who exists. Like, what are you, what are you actually contributing that's meaningful um, to people? Um, and so I tried to, when I was young, couple that with what I was interested in, which was science. I was a very curious child, always asking questions, always wanting to know how things work, um, always picking things apart to try and build them again. And with that view, I ended up studying science. Um, I did a Bachelor of Science and then a, an honors degree and then a master's degree, which I converted into a PhD, uh, focused on gene therapy. And the idea was that I would use what I was learning about science and about the human body in particular to try and fix people who have problems with their bodies, who have uh, genetic diseases. But I started thinking about impact and scope and scale and um, had the sense that genetics and, and gene therapy wasn't the place where you were going to solve South Africa's problems, you know, broad problems, the, the big issues that, that affect our country. Um, and so went into business with the idea that uh, I could have an impact on educating people or employing people and touch more people's lives and then worked as a management consultant for a little bit, long hours, learned a lot but also figured out that uh, being an employee wasn't, wasn't the space for me and particularly as a consultant being an employee of an employee uh, wasn't where I wanted to be so left that and came up with the idea for Sweep South and what appealed to me was that it came out of a problem that I'd faced before that I know a lot of people have faced before uh, looking for someone to help you at home with domestic work um, but looking a little bit into the problem more I realized how many domestic workers there are in the country there are over a million in South Africa so 2% of our population are domestic workers 8% of black women in the country are domestic workers but many people are still unemployed or underemployed so how do you use technology to find ways to connect those women to work um, and that's where the business spawned out of the legacy of sort of the Mboweni family Tito Mboweni of course former Reserve Bank Governor your uncle uh, Naledi Pandor <laughs> a somewhat close relation <laughs> to you Aisha <laughs> so here's the deal I have a hunch that perhaps there's a unique confluence of privilege experience endowment that you guys have inherited being who you are and being raised in the families you've been in that set you up to launch solutions within the sort of shared economy space. If I'm right about that, give me a sense of what those things might be and why. I think the obvious thing that some people listening might be thinking is, well, obviously connected kids with connected families, you know, opens doors. That may or may not be true, but give me a sense of what that, that looks like and, and whether my hunch is, is correct. I, I see you nodding, Aisha. I, like when I think about the biggest things that I've gotten from my family, it's, it's education and the importance of education. Like without being educated, you can't build solutions. And the idea of being someone who's proactive 
I think a lot of people forget, right, that like the majority of experience in our childhood was parents who were activists and who had like quote unquote ordinary jobs. My parents were teachers when I grew up, not politicians. They became politicians when I was, you know, a teenager and my formative years were, you know, were, were, were almost finished by then. So I think the biggest gift that I've had is, is uh, the one is education and the imp- understanding of the importance of education and access to really good quality education. And the second thing is a stable home environment that has allowed me to focus on um, what impact I can have on my surroundings as opposed to how am I going to survive, you know, how am I going to get through the day. And, and I think those are probably for me the two biggest things. Both of you tick all the boxes in terms of like higher education and and that kind of thing. I sense when you guys say education, I don't think you're you're pointing to what's hanging on your walls. Something tells me when you guys say education is a bit loaded. Yeah, so I think education is both in the formal sense, so making sure you study and you complete your degrees, but also learning from what we call the school of life, right? So my late grandfather uh, comes from the abject parts of poverty, right? And he was so poor that he was, you know, 11 years old selling newspapers in Ranfontein in nothing but his underwear, but he chose to read every single newspaper that he sold. Right, So at the end of the day, he was always very much informed. Uh, and beyond that, I think my family also taught me to be resolute in what I do. So whether it's right or wrong, just be resolute that this is the decision you're going to take and make sure it's deliberate. It's 100% or nothing. And from that, I think what we saw in the household both of my parents and my grandparents was that these were people who were so committed to other people themselves you know it's the kid who needs school fees paid it's the laptop that needs to be donated to someone going to university we always saw that life was always beyond you and, and you were just an instrument to making the world a better place so give me a sense for how you frame market relevance because you both alluded to it because there's so many ways to hop on a trend or to harness a technology to you know make life better for people so what's your filter for determining market relevance and what to attack with all the resources that have been endowed in you and and basically your grit determination time and effort so i think it's like it's being able to understand where there are problems uh, which i think any south african can do like you hear every day about the problems that our country faces but then to break those problems down into potential opportunities to fix those problems. And we've both spoken about responsibility and the opportunity to create positive impact. And so with that as the kind of the underpinning of your thinking, then when you think about those problems, you think about, well, well then how would I solve that? And then education is the tool that you use to, to kind of to frame that thinking, to have processes to that thinking. So, you know, if I'm going to break down this problem, how do I break it down into how people are affected, how many people are affected? What does it take to actually address it? What does it take to address it at, at a basic level and then you know, build that into a bigger vision? I mean, I think that's one part of it. And then the other part is understanding other people and seeking to understand other people. Um, and whatever environment you're in, not letting your reality be kind of the sum total of what you see as the reality of other people. Uh, in your environment. I mean, I have a very um, mixed background. And as a child, I found that incredibly difficult. So, you know, my family was half Muslim, half Christian, half Indian and colored, half black, half this, half that. I grew up in exile and then came to South Africa. And I've never come across someone who looks, acts, has had the same experiences as me. And it's meant that to make friends, I've had to understand my friend's environment, my friend's experiences. Um, And I think that that's helped because 
I can put myself in other people's shoes. And I think that's what market relevance is about. Um, is about really understanding your customers, but like on an emotional and psychological level where you really get people and get the things that they're dealing with. And so I'm thinking the notion, the imaginary of the sharing economy that, that's becoming a thing, what it can be or should be, a highly politicized issue, for better or for worse. I feel that we're quite lucky that we have founders like you with your background and your ideological bent trying to solve within this trend. But I can totally see why people could look at what you're trying to do and perceive a threat to their livelihoods, to the way things can or should be. Speak to that. I mean, in the case of Lula, it's hard to think of a more politicized industry than transport. So give me a sense of how you navigate the politics of winning people over, educating people, and the nuance of how you are approaching solving within this space. And acknowledging that there are big players like Airbnb, Uber, and many, many others who bring various colors to the portrait that's being painted about what this is becoming. And some colors, to my mind, preferable to others. All right, I think it's fair to say. What's your take, Villan? So I think many people make the mistake of thinking technology exists in isolation. So you can't just have cool technology that exists. You have to have supportive business models, right? And any company that uses tech needs to know that you can't have one business model. You have to have at least two because if you have one business model, you have no business model, right? And I think for us, one of the challenges that we've had is trying to convince people to have this behavioral change. So what's our riskiest assumption that we're testing with people? Um, And I think that navigating the politics is that traditionally how things have always been done intelligent transport systems have always cost hundreds of millions of rands they've always come from overseas and you always had a huge capital expenditure that you have to incur our model was like look let's build shared infrastructure host it on the cloud and let people plug and play at a fraction of the cost then you have operators who say well if it's so cheap or if it's so affordable it must not be real or it must be fake or it must probably break or something like that and we've had those issues right but we've been fortunate enough that we're able to partner with some reputable institutions such as Busmark which is the largest manufacturer of buses in South Africa such as the CSIR which is the largest science and tech resource uh, institute in the whole entire continent which have helped validate what we're doing because not only do they shape policy and trends they help be the testing ground for these new innovative models and technology and whilst we may not be there we, whilst we may not be where we want to be right now i think we're a lot further than where we were in the past and i think it's partnering for partnering for your weaknesses but pushing ahead with your strengths especially on the innovative business models we cannot i cannot stress that any further innovative business models is what really enables the technology to be as disruptive as it's supposed to be and aisha i feel like probably in the last quarter or so there's been a huge misunderstanding around perhaps the intent and the value, perhaps even the utility to the people you exist to serve as a company, which is these 2% of our workforce, the domestics. And I have to say, by the way, I have to thank you for our domestic helper who we use on Sweep South. She's in such demand. She runs a business. Literally, if, if there's someone we want to recommend to her, we have to give her a shout and she'll be like, listen, okay, I'll open up some slots, tell them I'll be available. You know, She's literally running her own business. And you know, speak through perhaps you know, what you're solving for in terms of how marginalized and, and perhaps vulnerable 
the constituent you're serving was prior to your platform and how you know you are changing that so i think yeah like you provide a, a, a perfect example um andelia of like the the ideal experience for someone who's working through our platform i think it's also important to say though that in 4 years there's no way that we're going to change like the reality for like any sort of meaningful majority of south african domestic workers when you have you know hundreds of years of entrenched exploitation um and abuse and and you know that takes the form of terrible rates of payment just look at the levels of minimum wage amongst domestic workers um and this is government set minimum wage for domestic workers and you, you know it's an absolute pittance um and then the sorts of treatment that that people have to deal with on a on a daily basis from employers from agencies there's exploitation there's sexism there's racism and all of this is hugely underpinned by a lack of agency which speaks to your point which is that you know i hate my employer they're you know racist or they are mean or they don't pay me well but i can't do anything about it because i don't have any other options um and so that's what we're trying to change is on the one hand through payment um and the rates that people are being paid and setting rates um but we also acknowledge that there's a ceiling there like and i think this is also what we have to do with when we think about technology when we think about new models we have to be realistic about the context and the reality of the situation that we're in as a country globally like sweep south isn't going to turn domestic work into you know a form of work that earns 20 30 40 000 rand a month that's the reality of it south africans can't afford that there are many domestic workers in the country like i don't think the economy can can even afford that so the reality is how do you make sure that people are paid at the upper end of what is possible how do you create a system through technology that enables people to, people to be paid more uh, that enables customers to pay more if they're able to that conscientizes customers to the fact that they should be paying more if they're able to and then to velani's point you like you want to build an ecosystem around that you want to have various business models that then contribute to that vision and that feed into that vision. So for us it's what are the other value adds that you can build onto that? What are people spending money on? Well, what can you use partnerships to either reduce that those expenses or get rid of them completely? Um how do you use partnerships to give people access to education through through technology? Um to access to healthcare and and health advice through through technology. International models distract us sometimes because of international founders getting up to mischief. and sometimes we get distracted about the actual positive impact that these technologies are creating so you know i don't like uh what the the founder of uber stood for i don't like his attitude but you know has uber been a a net positive in terms of you know what it's brought to uh to the world absolutely so i think we've got to yeah not get distracted by founder personalities and founders i think obviously that's important and when that becomes a, you know when that becomes culturally pervasive within organizations or within ecosystems that's you know that's a problem but i think what we need to focus on more is actually how do we all leverage this technology in a positive way because it's going to happen with or without us and if we're not if we're not part of it as south africans then we're going to have the likes of the us and china and whoever else come and take that pie from south africans so how do we build those solutions ourselves and how do we not be so scared of change that we discourage ourselves from being innovative I want you to to sort of factor in Velani on some of the pragmatic considerations you are needing to make as a platform. On some level you guys are rolling out a platform play 
with the potential to solve for so many different things. And as founders, you probably have to discipline yourselves to, to focus on one thing at a time, you know, score wins and build on those wins. Vilani, you're solving for transport at the sort of B2C level. What pragmatic considerations are worth putting out there to people listening? Potentially looking to invest in the space, be founders in the space. So I think um, the pragmatic things you should take into account is firstly openness, right? So in the shared economy, by definition, we have to be open. Uh, the second is for us to be collaborative. In, in the history of South Africa, and the history of a lot of countries, everyone thought it was a winner-takes-all model, right? Where, like a zero-sum us-or-them situation. Yeah, so I think even the shared economy has is, is not sustainable if it was zero-sum, right? You see a lot of you know, people who use Airbnb, uh, they get to you know, Cape Town or NU City, and they need to know how do they navigate the city, right? So then you have Lula playing its role in terms of shared economy, navigating different transport networks, and Airbnb doing their shared economy stuff. And that, that kind of collaboration is what needs to make the whole world uh, function a lot better. I think the third thing is also to mention that if you're looking... I thought you were going to throw Sweep South a bone and go, and then when Andile checks out of his Airbnb, Sweep South sachets in with their domestic help. I mean, that's a given, right? <laughs> that's a given. If you're not using Sweep South, what aren't you What's doing? that? Nice save. If you aren't using Sweep South, then, then you can't sit with us. You know what I'm saying? I hear you, bro. Sorry, I'm interrupting your line of thought. I'm being chacharach. Yeah, don't be chacharach, please. Order. Um, I think I think also um, the thing is to understand that in this environment that we should not be looking as if the Silicon Valley model, the European model is a cut and paste that can be replicated onto you know the African environment. Things take a lot more time. Uh, we have different experiences, we have different contexts, but we do have what you know most African people have, and that's resilience, right? You can go any corner of the world, you will always find an African hustling pushing, doing the entrepreneurial thing. We may not call it entrepreneurship, but it's inherent in us to keep on persevering. Uh, and especially if you look at women around the world, African women are the people who continue to persist. The guy wants to get a job, he waits for a few days, doesn't get anything, he goes back. A woman continues and persists. And I think we can learn a lot from women entrepreneurs. So those three things are very critical for us in this environment. And we have to keep pushing that, keep supporting it and be open, be collaborative and be persistent or resilient. What's the line between where you guys are at and what you're trying to build and what makes sense for you to be here and part of the dialogue that's been happening here? You know, there's a lot that we can learn, firstly, from the guys who've done it before. And again, whether it's positive or negative or whether it's the way to do things or the way not to do things. Airbnb is a good example. And I think that example comes from the founders. Like the founders are, I think they're like all around regarded as, as good guys who genuine in their intention to have a positive overall impact versus a founder whose intention is to grow and dominate the world. And actually, you know, like at the end of the day, it's not, a, it's not even about the people. Like it's about, you know, it's about the actual, the business model and, you know, like the people can be done away with. So right, because um, to, to the point you made earlier, good or bad, it's probably unhealthy to focus too much on, on founders in general. But I do think it, it's worth acknowledging when value sits upon founding a business seem to effectively filter through an organization and actually right down to the grassroots. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think um, in terms of like why get involved then with, with them, why be involved with a summit like this, what can you learn from it? The one is Airbnb to me is an example of how you create a positive community around an issue. Um, it's also an example of a big 
company that's based out of Silicon Valley that's come into an emerging market and an economically developing market and has actually not tried a cookie-cutter approach, but it has actually been like, well, you know, this is difficult. We're facing some issues here. We've been confronted with some issues. How do we think differently about how we, how we operate in this market? You know, what, what makes this different from being in America or being in Europe? And, and then how do we align ourselves accordingly? Uh, which I think is important for, for us when a lot of our examples are like, you know, the Silicon. We want to grow to the same size as Silicon Valley giants, but we've got to do it in a different way. And what better example than a Silicon Valley giant who's had to come into our market and think differently about their business? And I think the third thing is just networks. Like, I, you know, we're so far away from uh, the world's biggest technology hubs. And I think... Uh, using any example, any any opportunity to to connect is going to be valuable, and you know, m- taking advantage of the fact that you've got people here who who were involved in the very early days at Airbnb, for example, and and who are now in our city and who are making themselves accessible. I fully agree. I think the Airbnb model actually represents that servant leadership that we really la- la- you know desire the most. Uh, the fact that we're having the travel summit here in in Langa uh, shows that Airbnb is not trying to create ivory towers, but really trying to show how activity, progress, and empowerment can take place in a decentralized manner. Um, and that's the power of technological platforms like this, right? That, you know, their, their riskiest assumption in their business model is, would homeowners be able to open up their homes to complete strangers and it's clearly paid off but look at the ramifications of that you're having township development uh, and tourism increasing significantly we're having so much growth uh, in a place where you know conventionally would not be looked at and even as i looked around a number of the companies or stakeholders in the building it's not just you know your high-end hotels and your high-end destinations it's places that people would not go but it's places that people one way or another would like to experience and I'm so happy to see that kind of commitment and a true testament to innovative business models and the shared economy doing good so it's technology for good and that's that's what really puts a smile on my face we're taking a moment to thank the presenting sponsor for this series Airbnb can you imagine a world without travel we certainly can't and that's why at African Tech Roundup we reckon that the opportunity to travel and experience everything our world has to offer should be something everyone can enjoy Airbnb happens to think so too. They also believe that Africa's travel and tourism industry can do a lot to sustainably empower and economically elevate underserved communities, which is why they hosted the first ever Africa Travel Summit in Cape Town's Gwalanga Township in 2018, where this series was recorded. Airbnb can't wait to put you onto millions of unique homes, experiences, and places all over the world. Book now at airbnb.com. And now, let's get back to the conversation. Speak to the policymakers who listen to our podcast, um, listen to us across the continent, in other parts of the world. What are some of the, your frustrations around the, the thinking around this shared economy trend? And what would you most like them to know about perhaps how to think about this differently? Do you want them to get out of your way? Do you want them to shut up and stop like, writing bad concept notes and, 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 and poor policy and... And stop spending on expensive conferences and do expo- I don't know what it is, Aisha. I don't want to give them. I don't. I, I want to feed you the answer. But whatever you feel, give us. Give us your take. So how honest can I be? And and can I swear? No, I'm kidding. Straight up and down. You're on the internet. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so I think like the worst. The worst that policymakers can do is um, is step out of the way and just let let innovators 
do their job. And I, I mean, the worst as in that should be the worst that you look at doing as opposed to, you know, anything like getting actively involved and stopping people from trying to do what they do would be would be even worse than that. So the worst they should think about doing is, is stepping out of the way, I think. In other words, at very least, leave, leave you guys alone. At very least, just, just, just leave us alone. Um, you know, and I think we're not trying to shy away from regulation. We're not trying to do things that are unethical. I feel like in many cases, society and community will push back really hard against that. And you see that happening all over the world. So, you know, I don't think you need to be policed by policymakers. Um, You're basically saying the market will correct. The market will correct. The scale of, of the market, and particularly in businesses like this that, that, that only operate efficiently at scale, will mean that you can't get away with doing, with doing bad, basically. So in cash talk terms, you won't be around long enough to be a worry to them if you don't do right by the people. I mean, I don't think we won't be around to be a, a worry to them. I think you won't be around long enough to have any kind of the negative impact that policymakers are trying to defend against is the one thing but then I think the best thing that they could do is actually sit down so like you hear about all these summits all the time like summits summits like how many of these summits are involving young people how many of these summits involve people particularly around technology that actually understand are involved in technology how many summits like these involve women and not summits that are based on gender but actually just broadly like summits um, not, sorry to interrupt I just got this incredible idea listen up all of you uh, shared economy players, imagine you guys developed a database of people like my wife and I who have bought into this idealized notion of shared economy and its potential. And you made us show, you know, demonstrate that we are, we've bought in. You know, we'll show you the stats. We'll show you our VIP status on our ride-sharing services. We'll, we'll demonstrate how often we use, you know, things like Airbnb, that we use Sweep South, and Lula loves us, and, and so on and so forth. Can you imagine you created a database of those people, and you started to sort of just observe and learn from those people? Like, imagine a summit of a thousand people like that. Sorry, that, I'm just ideating on the spot, but I'm just like, yeah, it's crazy. No, that would be a big deal. And, but, but imagine also a summit of a thousand people like that, and a thousand people who provide those services to them. That, to me, would be incredible. Um, again, like you can't stop what's naturally happening around the world with policy. Um, you can't also engineer policy for innovation because you don't know what shape innovation is going to take. Like I, I think the best that they could do is, is be open to hearing from uh, young people who may be less experienced but who understand all this stuff a lot better and who live and breathe and eat it. And then to, to stop thinking so much about the now and about uh, elections and whatever else and kind of the politicking and think about sustainability. The stuff that we did previously isn't working. So how do you work with people who have new ideas and who can build those new ideas to, to do things in a different way? Yeah, I think um, with all these policymakers, how many of their advisors or advisory boards consist of people under the age of 35? How many of the people are between 19 and 25 or 19 and 35? Because this is the generation that we're supposedly trying to influence and impact, right? And if you, if you don't have people who have those lived experiences and have tried and tested new models, new tech advising or being part of policy, I think we're playing um, a very dangerous game. So I think I would probably advocate for policymakers and institutions to kind of set up some sort of, I don't call it millennial board or some young innovators board that can actually deal with issues like blockchain, machine learning, AI or digital banking, because 
you know, I, I, I think it was Einstein who said this, that you cannot uh, solve a problem with the same mindset you used to create that. And I think the beauty about innovation and disruption is that it actually comes from mindsets that were not part and parcel of an entrenched system. So policymakers, I think, would be doing themselves a great advantage if they incorporated the young minds, incorporated the, um, the innovation that we have. And not in a manner that says, oh, you're on the side and you, know, you just tell us, but give them decision-making powers, right? Give them to say, well, this is a bill that we could pass that will make open data available for public transport services or open data around, you know, how, how people can better improve the services around, you know, healthcare or housing, etc. And I think those kind of mindsets um, are much needed. And, the, and it's not that they're not there. I think it's just a deliberate exercise that needs to be done and helped. And I think most importantly, if we could have a way to track how policy is performing or at what stage policies are at, some sort of, um, you know, like when you order, uh, um, you know, a, pa- a package online and you can see it's, you know, at the delivery point, it's at the, you know, customs, it's on its way to you. You could have that kind of system for policy, right? So a policy on shared economy, policy on payments, a policy on labor. If you could have that and have people actively contribute, I think we live in a much more prosperous society, right? Because I think we always think the voice of the people is very homogenous, but it's really diverse. And I think that would be a best way to really improve policy and increase participation, but have an overly prosperous society. You guys are clearly ahead of the curve. Even the Internet Society, you know, its best estimates for internet penetration on the continent, like what are we talking, 22% mobile access to the internet taken into account. How much of what you guys are doing is commercially viable, sustainable now versus we need to sort of survive into the future the way some of the big tech brands within shared economy are doing this? Like, just let's just get as much money as we can and outlive history, (laughs) that kind of thing. I think our models are different because we're dealing with very broad bases within the economy who don't necessarily originally form part of that 22%. And so what it becomes is that there's so many people who you're dealing with that your model can actually drive deeper penetration, higher penetration. So I think there's a there's a natural move, and it's and you know it's um, it's accelerated on the continent. Four years ago, uh, we had to buy phone contracts for sweep stars who joined our platform because no one had smartphones. You know, and I had to sit on the phone with the with the telcos, kind of begging them to give me a contract for thirty phones or whatever, despite the fact that I couldn't afford it. And now that's not the case anymore because everyone has has a smartphone. Everyone who we speak to has a basic smartphone. And so, you know, I think businesses like ours drive that penetration further up as opposed to needing to wait for penetration to catch up. Um, and I think when it's as broadly based as what, we're, what the industries that we're in, when it's transport, when it's domestic work, it's affecting so many people that then it becomes, oh, there's this thing that I can use to access, you know, information about the best public transport networks. Uh, there's this thing that I can use to access work. There's this thing that my husband can use to access work. I better make sure that I get a phone and I can get it more cheaply now than I could a year or two ago. So, so yeah, you become part of that, 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 um, that move to get people online. One of the beauties about 
organizations like ours is our size um, and size that we're agile enough to adopt to a number of the challenges that we see. Typical example, if we want to decide whether to add a feature to an app or not, it doesn't take three AGMs and a board resolution to do it. It's literally a phone call between two, three, four members and you know you have the app feature there in the next, next week, right? And I think that's beautiful in the fact that we're always a lot more responsive to demand and even like whilst we may have the need for smartphones to get the best out of our service we also have services that can you know target those who are lower end in fact if you guys could see what's in my hand you'd see that for example if you looked at this piece of paper which is a lula code uh, we have people who are who could not afford the you know tablets or smartphones that they could put on their vehicles but we can stick these on people's vehicles if you don't have data you don't have a smartphone you dial our shortcut and it pays for your transport right that works on our back end that is incredibly accessible to most people right or you need so your ussd yeah, basically. All you need to ensure is that your battery is on, right? Um, and then you have some sufficient amount of signal to process the payments. So that's the kind of um, commercial viability we're looking at. And eventually, yeah, we could phase this out, but we're still trying to capture as as much of the market we can to make mobility accessible. Uh, but we know that there'll come a time where everyone is smartphone enabled and data costs will be really affordable and, you know, life will be jolly, right? So there's this notion of inclusive travel that's been... Um touted at this conference in many different ways. I think people call it so many different things, democratization of tourism and travel, you know, inclusive travel, uh, uh, taking travel to the people, economic empowerment via travel. Like it's taken so many shapes and forms. It's been really fascinating to see the, the different ways it's described or perceived by, you know, founders, large incumbents, startups that have turned big themselves. You know, I think of Travel Start, for instance, journalists, Frame that notion for me in a way that makes sense for you, given your context and what you guys are working on. What does that mean and how does, say, Sweep South feature in that, in that world? If we're not there yet, like, what should we expect? There's a customer experience, and that's a really beautiful experience. And I think a lot of people who use technology and who digital natives will get. But then there's also the other part which is the connecting right so it's like okay cool I landed at this place um, there are five people available for me through whichever platform it is that will give me recommendations about what to eat tonight or if I'm going to order you know what platform is the best to order from because they're the fastest or have the type of food that I'm looking for or whatever it is and then the experiences part again is you know it's the people so what are the best experiences that I should look for that give me a real sense of what it's like to be in that city from a, a, a native's uh, point of view as opposed to a tourist point of view. And then I think the other part that's missing is the actual experience of all of those service providers as well. So, I mean, I could talk about this for hours and hours, clearly. But, you know, the guy who delivered my food, earlier that day he delivered a whole lot of packages on the same bike, you know, and he, earlier in that day, gave a couple of people a ride on his scooter when he wasn't busy doing deliveries. And so now he's earned, you know, double or triple what it is that he would have been earning just doing one of them or not doing any of those things. And the woman who's come to clean your home, obviously I have to mention that part, is a mom who's looking after a whole lot of kids and, you know, through her phone and, and through the same app that she's using to get work, has also... Um, um, halfway through a course that's teaching her how to do basic bookkeeping so she can provide that service to her community. And she also has access to insurance products that she can turn on and off uh, that allow her to care for her family if anything happens on the way to work or 
or at any other point. Um, and so, like, for me, it's if you focus on the people, that really starts to give you an amazing view of what's possible. Like, the people, what their life is like, what their daily lived reality is like and then how technology can touch every point you know in that day but in a way that doesn't exclude other people or interactions with other people because I think that's important. Um, I think for a lot of us we think of technology as this tool to help us win and we're not really thinking in terms of service in terms of how is this helping who is this helping um, I was actually quite touched to, to see what you guys were doing just before this this interview. You you were one of I think five or six entrepreneurs um, uh, who people had the opportunity to have lunch with, and you guys had really intimate little rooms where people could now hang out with you. And it was like at least fifteen twenty minutes past the time people were supposed to break for the next thing, and people were still in there. And I felt so bad for having to s- sneak in there and go. I need these people. We need to do the podcast. What did people want to learn? What were you helping them with? What themes kind of came up? So I think uh, from my session, uh, the one critical theme was, ironically, how to get around regis- legislation. Um, pe- get around it? Yeah, get around it. I, and I simply believe it's sometimes better to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission, especially in tech. Careful, because we know that where that took a certain ride-sharing service. I, I know, and that's why we're alive and they're not um, in London. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think a lot of people are always curious to know about how to get started, right? And because there's so many factors that people consider before starting, and it's almost like they're waiting for a perfect moment to begin. But, you know, as is true to the nature of life, you don't begin with everything... Um, in mind, you don't begin with all the perfect conditions. You just do, right? And the, the first thing is to take the first step, right? And then you'll keep climbing, keep climbing, going, and maybe you'll fail, maybe you'll stop. But you keep on trying, right? Because Airbnb, they face a number of issues that they never considered in the beginning. Um, but the point is you can't try and do that from the beginning. Otherwise, you won't get started. And naturally, to all the work that you do, Every single step you take will have certain, you know, repercussions. And the point is just to be resilient in that. And I think everyone in my session had had some sort of intent to start a business, and maybe some have. They've all faced struggles, but they all know that resilience will keep them, you know, going through. And I was really humbled that I could share my own journey, which, you know, has its ups and downs, which has its own, you know, being uniqueness. But I think it's not unique in the sense that everyone can be an entrepreneur. Everyone can try hard. Everyone can just pursue what they want. And with all the hard work and time, it will pay off. Um, we, we have lots of struggles. And I think some of the problems with the entrepreneurship talks is that we always focus on the good side and not really share the bad side. And I think both Aisha and I have, uh, you know, shared a lot of our downsides. And I think that's... You notice I haven't asked you how much you've raised. Uh, also, just because typically that's what's covered in a, what I consider an unhelpful way. I think it's important for us to understand and to celebrate with you guys when you do land investment, for instance. But um, I prefer to put you guys in a position, which we won't do now, to tell us how things are working, like in, in, in true value terms. Like the metrics that I happen to care about more than perhaps how much you've been able to attract to your business right now, which heads up to y'all when you come back. All right. <laughs> Look, I, I think our business is in a very interesting stage. We have done a bit of some pivoting or rather focusing on a what we call a shared microtransit service that we're piloting here in Cape Town, which we've been fortunate enough to have about seven different entities sign up for with the total uh, ridership of about 20,000 people uh, with the intent to reduce the number of congestion in Cape Town and increase productivity 
given that the city of Cape Town is the most congested city in South Africa, uh, you know, with about 49.1 hours spent in traffic on a yearly basis. So we're really excited to do that. Um, and, you know, we've signed up a number of operators. We're looking at ways to make mobility accessible, but we're, we're well on our way to the next the next big step, as, as frustrating as it has been for the past four and a half years. You know, I, I do think just generally we need to get more real about, okay, what does 20,000 riders mean for you guys? Like in terms of revenue, what is it costing you to acquire? Bottom line, you know, revenue. If I'm a founder, potentially eyeing the space, an investor, a policymaker thinking about the viability of this, I feel like those are the key things we need to start to talk about more readily than we currently are. But that said, what's your take on the question, um, Aisha? Um, so on, on some of the key themes that came out of our conversations. Yes, because I literally had to peel you away from some of the people you're chatting with. Like, what was the prevailing sentiment? What do you feel was exchanged? What sort of values filtered to the top? Interestingly, a lot of it was about the sense that there's this big um, gap between two sides of a marketplace. And how do you try and bridge that gap in ways that are authentic? And in ways where it's not either perceived as or is exploitative. And, and you know, I, I shared a little bit about how we use technology to do that, but also how our model went from initially being an Uber for X to actually being about how do you create value on the supplier side um, and in doing so then help to empower people to want to then create value to your, as in your shared, because it's, you know, both our sweep stars and our customers. Um, so that was one thing. And then, and then I think also the, the idea of like technology being really scary to a lot of people and being very new and seeming like this very complicated thing, when in fact technology is, is a tool like any other tool and just technology in itself doesn't do anything but technology with a business model and an idea behind it is something that's useful so how do you use technology to do that I have this business how do I how do I use technology I, I think some of it was just people who really want to use technology to enable their businesses but are quite daunted by the idea of of what that'll involve right and I have to tell you guys my takeaway is just um, I'm encouraged that this vision, I don't think it's a unified vision by any means. I think we're working on it, all of us, from Airbnb to you guys to even those of us who are just, you know, happy to, to be served. I, I'm, I'm encouraged that the vision is in good hands, man. And uh, I wish you all the best. I really do. Uh, here's to Sweep South doing its thing. Lula, light up the sky, do the thing. Um, yeah, let's make it work. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's been cool sitting with you. Appreciate it.